The first is Second Chronicles chapter 20, and then if you want to place a finger over in the book of Psalms for the last of these Psalms of Asaph, Psalm 83. But I want to read what is a connected portion of Scripture. We'll say more about that as we go along, but this is one of those parts of Old Testament narrative that just grasps the attention as we see the hand of God in a remarkable way intervene for his people. So Second Chronicles 20, we'll read the portion beginning in the opening verse. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon, and with them other beside the Ammonites, came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, they be in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Art not thou our God who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel? and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever. And they dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil cometh upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then wilt thou hear and help. Now, behold the children of Ammon, and Moab, and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldst not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us, to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hearken ye, all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, And thou, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook, before the wilderness of Jeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, And see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. 
Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe His prophets, so shall ye prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army, and to say, Praise the Lord, for His mercy endureth forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. Linda reading there, trusting again the Lord to prosper the reading of His Word. And if you turn over now to Psalm 83, I want us to just read the psalm in a moment after we pray, but setting something of a context for the psalm. But let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Lord, we come grateful for the privilege of singing praises to a God who's worthy. Lord, grateful even reading of your intervening in the past, intervening at a point in which your people rose up to sing praises. Let us be such a people. And we ask that you might grant us grace today as we come in this evening hour to again look at your word. Give us encouragement and instruction from it. And we pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Well, I want to read together this 83rd Psalm as we come to it this evening. And this is the last in this section of the Psalter that is these Psalms of Asaph. So let us again hear as we read the Lord's Word. Keep not thou silence, O God. Hold not thy peace, and be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies make a tumult, and they that hate thee have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against thy hidden ones. They have said, Come, and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel be no more in remembrance. For they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against thee. The tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites, of Moab and the Hagarines, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher also is joined with them. They've holpen the children of Lot. Selah. Do unto them as unto the Midianites, as to Sisera and to Jabin at the brook of Kison, which perished at Endor. They became as dung for the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb, ye all the princes of Zeba and Azamnuna, who said, Let us take to ourselves the houses of God in possession. O my God, make them like a wheel as the stubble before the wind, as the fire burneth the wood, and as the flame setteth the mountains on fire. 
So persecute them with thy tempest, and make them afraid with thy storm. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish, that they may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the Most High over all the earth. This, as we said, is the last in this section of the Psalms of Asaph. And what we have read in Second Chronicles 20 is the closest historical setting with which to fix the psalm. Many assume that the one we read of there, of the sons of Asaph, who the Lord came upon to give the prophecy of victory there in that battle, is perhaps even the one who penned our psalm. It cannot be known. It is uncertain with all those details tied together. The similarities are certainly not to be ignored. But one of the differences is that as we read this psalm, that while the nations that were confederated together against Israel in that time, attacking Jehoshaphat, there are those and more that are listed in the psalm. This perhaps can be explained in giving the psalm more than just a historical setting. Giving the psalm, as is true in so many psalms, a prophetic setting as well. Perhaps more on that as we go along. But when we come to look at these cries, there are interesting truths that not only prevail in that time against Jehoshaphat, the time in which the psalm is given to encourage God's people through the years, and the days in which, well, the church still awaits such trials and deliverances from the hand of God. If you look at these that are coming together against the Lord, it's remarkable to see how disparate forces find a common cause when they unite against God's people. And yet really, when you look at the psalm, you see that the hatred that they have is toward God. In verse 2 we read, Thine enemies make a tumult. They that hate thee have lifted up the head. But of course, what is true in all the affairs of men? Haters of God can't reach Him. They can't find him out, as it were, to assault him directly. So they assault his people. Verse 3, they've taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against, it's an interesting phrase, an interesting description, consulted against thy hidden ones. Here you see antagonism toward God ultimately is the cause of the enemy's antagonism toward God's people. Israel is encircled here by this list of enemies. You look beginning in verse 5, and the verses that follow these are listed together. We won't take time per se to go through the whole list exhaustively, but if you consider something of the ones that are mentioned, the tabernacles of Edom, Edom is Esau, the brother of Jacob, the one who despised his birthright. 
Here we read of these, of the Ishmaelites. Who are these but the son of the bondwoman in contrast to the free? If you look in verse 6 at the end of the verse, the Hagarenes, it's uncertain who they are. They're not prominent in other scriptures, but many suggest, and of course you see it in the name, Hagar perhaps connected here. So many feel these are descendants of Hagar from another husband, Ishmael being that one son of Abraham that was not according to the promise. Moab and Ammon, as they're described here later, the children of Lot whom these others have helped. The nephew of Abraham, the one who pitched his tent towards Sodom. God wonderfully delivered. And yet these the children of incest and these nations that were antagonistic to Israel throughout their days. It's striking how those that have some connection with the promise find themselves so antagonistic to God's people. These that, well, despise the birthright. These that despise grace. Israel is encircled by this list of enemies. If we were to work it out and then look at the geography of these that are mentioned when you come to consider the Philistines as well, the inhabitants of Tyre. A lot of the others were on the east and the southeast. Ammon and Moab, Edom. But the Philistines and Tyre encircling them on the other side as well. Israel is surrounded by her enemies. And a lot of these would have been enemies with one another on another day, as it were. But they come together against Israel now. How many times are God's people encircled by enemies? Enemies that may not have a great affection one for the other in other times and other ways, but they can find a common cause. They can strike a common bond when they come against God's people. It's one of the remarkable things in the gospel narrative of our Lord's crucifixion. You think of Pilate and Herod. And the Gospel writers remarked that they hadn't been overly fond of one another. But they were great friends from that day forward as they both lifted their hands against Jesus. How friendly were the chief priests and the Roman occupiers? Wasn't a lot of love there. You think of the trouble Israel caused Rome, and Israel's despising the Roman scepter. You think of the mutual feeling when Romans were sent to guard and to police, as it were, that dangerous region because of Israel's hatred of them and rebellion. And yet the chief priests are willing to cry out, We have no king but Caesar. You know, Pilate, one of our problems with Jesus is that he's, he's asking us to do something that keeps us from doing all we can for Caesar. They weren't lovers of Caesar. 
They were haters of Christ. Rome and Israel, confederate together against the Lord and His anointed. It doesn't take a lot of ingenuity to draw the connections to the different enemies of the Lord's people today that encircle us. You think of the world itself. Just pause and hold that term before you. I preached a sermon several years ago. Some of my journeys through my notes, I have a sermon. It's one of those few times I tried to put a catchy title to something. What in the world is worldliness? I think in that message I drifted off into going through the New Testament usages of the word cosmos and defending Calvinism um, rather than talking about worldliness in the sense in which we most often use it. But the world as a system whose frame of mind, whose direction of thought, that which ties things together, if you will, disparate peoples, disparate ideas, is antagonism to God. It's a representation of the fallen depraved heart and mind. The world, how does Watts phrase it in his hymn, is this vile world a friend to grace to lead me on to God? The rhetorical question is answered simply no. You think of the different ways the worldly mindset surrounds us. Entertainment the practices and pursuits of those we rub shoulders with day by day in our varied occupations and in the markets, as it were. Common bond. People seeking some connection. You ever just think about the strivings of the heart? We were created to be worshipers, to worship our God and Creator. We were created as social creatures to interact and enjoy one another's company forever. And what has sin done? It's interrupted and ruined all of that. Now we're perennial idolaters. And now perennially there is conflict between us and our neighbor. And you think of the worldlings and their desires for society. Usually, of course, as apostasy takes deeper and deeper root among nations and peoples, the connection just starts going further down the ladder to the lowest common denominator that can bring us together for a laugh or for whatever. We're surrounded by the world. We could speak at length about political decay. We could speak at length about ecclesiastical apostasy and chaos, false teaching. Well, as Edom... Ammon and Moab, Tyre and Philistia, the Hagarenes, 
All of these that would perhaps not walk in lockstep with one another on other things. When pressures come, they will walk together in opposing the Lord's people. Israel in the psalm is called upon to remember the Lord's working for them in days gone by. Verse 9, Do unto them as unto the Midianites, as to Sisera and Jabin at the brook of Kishon, which perished at Endor. Interesting. Two battles here referenced as you compare the psalm with the history. One, well more than one, that understands the psalm has a reference that reaches to the future as well. These two battles were in that plain of Jezreel, near that mount of Megiddo, Armageddon as we speak of it and become parlance today. Well, we won't pursue that per se. But those were two battles in which Israel was surrounded and pursued by a much stronger enemy. And yet victory was given by the hand of God by a tiny band by comparison of the Lord's people. God intervened on behalf of His people with remarkable victory. At Brook Kishon, I think it was Spurgeon that said the Lord could turn a brook into a sea as He destroyed Pharaoh's army by the waters of the Red Sea. He destroyed here Sisera and his army with the waters of the brook Kidron. God is able to deliver by many or by few or by none. The passage we read in Chronicles, what a remarkable story. You see the prophecy as the Spirit of the Lord came upon this one of the sons of Asaph, perhaps even the writer of our psalm. And that closing part of his prophecy, you will not need to fight in this battle. Remarkable. And yet what an encouragement. We can look at our situation. We can look at our circumstances. We can look at the society in which we live. We can look at the moral and spiritual decay of our world and think it's impossible. Well, when has that ever been a problem for God? Jehoshaphat's prayer, what a remarkable window of blessing and of spiritual insight for God's people. Lord, here they are. Nations confederated together against us. A great multitude. We have no might, no strength, no ability to confront these people. Neither know we what to do. But our eyes are upon Thee. And the Lord answers. And I love the so many of the turns of phrase there that I think are so precious. But we read there when they began to sing and to praise, then the Lord set ambushments against them, against their enemies. Isn't that a remarkable thing? Don't you usually sing a song of victory after the battle's won? Well, when the Lord has promised, 
You don't need to wait to sing. It's when they began to sing in praise that God intervened. I just wonder, in the last days of this age, the powers of the man of sin seem to be at their height. And all hope for God's people seems to be utterly lost. If there won't be psalms of praise that go up even before our Lord returns. The psalm is interesting as it comes to its conclusion. Because their prayers indeed for God to judge His enemies... We see verse 13, My God, make them like a wheel as the stubble before the wind. It's interesting reading some of the comments and explanations of what is translated for us as wheel. Perhaps a swirling dust cloud. Others described, well, it was a European commentator and I didn't recognize any of the plants, but it made me think at least of tumbleweed, which we don't have here in the east, but... The reference, though, is obvious. God will make them like the chaff. So wind drives away. And you see some of the vivid description of fire. As the flame setteth the mountains on fire. You think of the fires we read of and see on the news in the West. Think of some of the fires in the prairie. I love one of the tracts we used to have. Stand where the fire's been. I always wondered about putting a new cover on that one to perhaps not scare the reader off before they could come to read it. But if you ever read that tract, it was a beautiful gospel illustration. Those that lived in the prairie and would see and know of a prairie fire approaching. The speed at which the wind would drive those flames, it would be impossible to outrun it, impossible to escape it, except for one means, to start a little fire of their own. Let it burn some of the area where they were. And then stand where the fire's been. So that when the real fire comes, there's nothing for it to consume. It just goes around you. And you're safe. What a picture of the gospel. Get in Jesus. The fire is already consumed. Our sins in Him. Here, God's vengeance on His enemies. Persecute them, verse 15, with thy tempest. Make them afraid with thy storm. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek thy name. O Lord. Commentators wrestle here because it seems as if there's prayer for conversion. And yet, what is asked with regard to judgment here and with the ultimate shame of the enemies comes short of that? Well, I think if we look at the future aspect of the psalm, we find an answer. We trust there will be those of the enemies of God's people even in the last days that are converted. I get frustrated at times, I understand it, but I get frustrated at times when some of the modern 
Theonomic postmillennialists keep criticizing premillennialism as a pessimistic prophetic outlook. I understand their reference to the dispensational premillennial outlook, the withdrawal of the church from society and the mistake that it was per se, and we get into those discussions. But a historic non-dispensational premillennial perspective I find to be far, far from pessimistic. I believe what we see unfolded in the pages of Scripture is that the greatest revival the world will ever see is still future. It may very well be that one of the things that frustrates the man of sin in the closing days of his career is that there are more and more multitudes that recognize Him for who He is and recognize Jesus for who He is. And of course, Israel leading the way in that as we see in Romans 11 and their conversion in those days. But aside from our prophetic speculations and observations, if we look in the future day, the enemies that are overcome by the hand of God will even without conversion be brought to know His name. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be submission and recognition even by those that do not believe, even by those that do not love our Lord. And so the prayer concludes, verse 17, let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish, that men may know that Thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the Most High over all the earth. It's interesting just to do a a survey, particularly through the Old Testament Scriptures, of the times that the Lord speaks about His intervention coming in such a way that people will know He's the Lord. It's said of Egypt. It's said of Israel in Egypt. The Egyptians and the Israelites from their own perspective and for very different reasons are going to know that God is God. And there's coming a day in which the Lord will intervene in history in such a way that there won't be any questions about who our God is. That He is indeed God that all the people of the earth may know that He is the Most High, that He really is God. And so here, and this is one reason I think we understand the psalm and this prayer, this burden of the psalmist, is much more than just looking back at a particular point in Israel's history and a localized battle and incident along their storied and checkered timeline. 
This is a universal victory. This is a universal recognition of Jehovah. And this is something that we still await. This is something we can pray for. This is something that can encourage us when we seem as Israel at this point surrounded, encompassed on every side by enemies. That our God is on the throne. And that it's not really, as it were, a position of weakness to say, Lord, we have no might against this company. We don't even know what to do. But our eyes are upon Thee. God's people will say such things again. I want to close this evening. I think it's interesting, sometimes in Spurgeon's sermons, you'll see little pieces of poetry scattered in that aren't referenced, and it seems quite evident they're words he's penned. Well, Spurgeon wrote a poem to put into verse this psalm. And he says the following attempt to versify the psalm and to tune it to gospel purposes is submitted with great diffidence. Maybe that's one we look up after we go home. But hear his words of meditation on the psalm as we close. O God, be Thou no longer still. Thy foes are leagued against Thy law. Make bare Thine arm on Zion's hill, great captain of our holy war. As Amalek and Ishmael had war forever with Thy seed, so all the hosts of Rome and hell against Thy Son their armies lead. Though they're agreed and naught beside, against Thy truth they all unite. They rave against the crucified and hate the Gospel's growing might. By Kishon's brook, all Jabin's band at Thy rebuke were swept away. O Lord, display Thy mighty hand. A single stroke shall win the day. Come rushing wind with stubble chase. Come sacred fire Thy forest burn. Come Lord with all Thy conquering grace. Rebellious hearts to Jesus turn that men may know at once that Thou, Jehovah, lovest truth right well, and that Thy church shall never bow before the boastful gates of hell. May the Lord make that our prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, tonight we come in a season of relative ease and comfort Lord, we have known that all our lives. And yet, Lord, we see and have seen the growing forces of evil. The world becoming more and more brazen and bold in its opposition to the Gospel and to Your Son and to Your people. And we see the comparative smallness of the number of Thy people and weakness of the church in this day. And we can pray something like Jehoshaphat prayed. And we're called upon to lift up this psalm. 
All these bound together. So another psalm speaks against the Lord and against His Christ. And we His people caught in the midst. Lord, help us not to look so much at the seeming might of the enemy, but to say with Jehoshaphat, our eyes are upon Thee, to the eternal power, the infinite power of our God. And Lord, while we would think of power to deal with Your enemies and ours, Lord, we close this Sabbath remembering an even greater power. A power and authority You had to deal with our sin. We pray that we might marvel at that power. And how in the day in which Jesus is revealed, that that will be His highest glory. That He has saved His people from their sins. And so take us, Lord, to our homes, to our different responsibilities and help us to be a gospel people in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Let our light so shine before men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. And give us to be ready to give an answer to every man. A reason of the hope that lies within us. And Lord, look to our times. Give us wisdom. Give us grace. Give us humility and yet boldness to navigate such days. Give us gospel hearts. We pray all these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.